So both of these ordinances are pointing to the same thing. Both of these ordinances are saying, look to the cross and see yourself on it, specifically your old self. So what he says to do, he says, let each one do two things. Examine himself or herself. And then secondly, he says, discern the body. So within those two words there, we're not going to break the words apart. But those two words there, they're two different words, and they're both getting at a similar idea. The idea, you you might use uh, the first word, you might... Use it if you were a metal worker and you were, you were trying to, to separate, to examine what was the pure metal and what was the dross. Same kind of idea there. And discern. I mean, they're translated very well. They're not hard, difficult words to translate. They're translated well and accurately. Examine yourself. There's this self-examination, this self-assessment, and there's a discernment. A discernment is, is simply a, an examination that makes a decision. That, that makes a differentiation, right? If you discern between two things, you've thought about the two things and you've made a choice. Okay? So this discernment that he says, you are to discern the body. Now within that phrase is the key for us to understand what Paul is saying for us to do to make the manner that we come to the table a worthy manner. Discern the body. What in the world does that mean? So there's two schools of thought. One is that Paul is saying, discern the body in the sense of discern the body of believers. That there is sin that is taking place where believers are sinning against other believers and you are not discerning the value of the body properly. And you need to reassess how you think of the body of Christ. That position holds validity. It is consistent with the context because the context is the context of the body sinning against itself. So to discern the body, meaning to discern how I relate to other believers, would fit the context of Paul's thought. However, I don't think that that's what Paul's getting at. And here's why. There's two reasons why. When he says discern the body, he uses the standard word for body, soma. We probably know that word, like uh, psychosomatic illness, you know, soma. He uses the same word three times in the passage. And the other two times he uses the same word, He clearly is using it to speak of not the body of believers, but the body of Christ. So it would seem odd to me that Paul would use one word three times in the same passage, two times meaning one thing, a third time meaning something completely different, and not give us any differentiating clues. That would seem odd to me. The other reason I think that what he's talking about is discern the body of Christ is if you look with me at verse 23. Look at verse 23. You see that word for? That word is a very helpful word. What that word tells us is that what Paul says after that is giving giving a reasoning or a basis or a resolution to what he just said. Okay? So what did he just say? He just said, I cannot commend you. I cannot commend you on what you're doing for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. And then he goes on to explain the supper. The supper, the, the, the elements of the supper, all of which are connected, as Paul says, to the suffering body of Christ, to the spilled blood of Christ. So Paul's reasoning, the reason why he can't commend them, 
has to do with the suffering body and blood of Christ. If the reason he can't commend them has to do with the, with the suffering body of Christ, don't you think that the solution to that is also something to do with the suffering body of Christ? Does that make sense? That if the reason for their offense has to do with an improper valuing or understanding of the suffering of Christ, then the answer is to change how you think of the suffering body of Christ. Okay, So it makes sense to me that what he says is the way that you approach the table in a worthy manner is examine yourself and discern the body. So body, I'm going to take it to mean shorthand for another phrase that is used in the passage, which is body and blood. You follow what I'm saying? When he says discern the body, I'm going to take that as just shorthand for body and blood, meaning discern the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Discern that. That is the way that you come to the table in this appropriate manner, in this worthy manner. So what does Paul mean by discern the suffering, dying body bleeding blood of Christ on the cross. What is he getting at there? How does the New Testament teach us to think of the suffering of Christ on the cross? Let's think about that. How does the New Testament teach you to look upon Christ on that cross? What does the New Testament teach you to think about Christ on that cross? Let me suggest to you the New Testament teaches us a number of things that we should regard as we look to the body of Christ, as we look to Christ on the cross, spilling his blood, giving up his body. The New Testament teaches us to look upon him on the cross and to see our substitute. He is made to be our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So on the cross, he is made to be our sin. God then comes in judgment. Remember, the sky gets dark, which means God is now present in judgment. God comes to judge His Son who has been made sin, and God pours His wrath upon His Son so that by faith in Christ, the wrath of my sin is poured out upon the Son of God, and the righteousness of God is given to me. That's salvation. That's penal substitution. So that's one way that the New Testament teaches us to think about Christ on the cross. But let me suggest that the New Testament teaches us to go further than that, that that actually doesn't go far enough. The New Testament teaches us that in our spirits, in our our minds, when we think of Christ on the cross, to think not only of one who is giving himself for us, our substitute becoming sin for us, but also to see ourselves on the cross. Or more specifically, the New Testament teaches you to see your old self on the cross. Or to use a biblical phrase, the old man. I don't mean the old man like, well, I could really pick on somebody right here. I don't mean the old man like as an elderly, but the old self, the sinful man or the sinful woman. The New Testament teaches you That in your heart, when you look upon the cross, when Christ is on the cross, you are to see not only your substitute, you are to see the old man dying on the cross. Let me show us where we see this. We see this, first of all, in the passage right before. So immediately before this passage is the famous head covering passage. 
But right before that in chapter 10, the, topic, the, the context that Paul is talking about in chapter 10 is the context of idolatry. The Corinthians have, have fallen into idolatry. And Paul is making the point that they need to leave that behind. They need to flee from this idolatry because they are all one in Christ. They are together. And so there's a sense in which if you fall into idolatry, then you also drag uh, her into idolatry. And if you fall into idolatry, you also drag him into idolatry because we're one. There's a sense in which if one of us falls into idolatry, we drag the whole body into idolatry. That's Paul's point. And so we look at what he says here in 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 10 and verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, that's referring to the cup of the supper. The cup of bless, blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So Paul says this cup, this cup that's part of this ceremony, this table, is this cup not a participation in his body? Now that, that word participation, you all know it. It's the word koinonia. You know, koinonia clubs and everything. Sharing, participation. Paul says, is this cup not participating in his body? He goes on, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? These bread and this cup that we partake of, we are sharing or participating on the cross with Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. Now verse 18, consider the people of Israel. So he says, think back now to the Old Testament days. How did it work for them? Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What does that mean? That means that, as we've said before, those who were given these Old Testament sacrifices, those sacrifices never saved a single person. Those sacrifices never took away one single sin. All the bulls and goats and lambs and doves never took away a single sin. But it was an act of faith and obedience that faith in the one who told them these sacrifices, give these sacrifices, they would give these sacrifices in faith. And a big part of that faith was they were in their hearts to see themselves on that altar burning, to see their old self on the altar, to see their sinful self being burned up on the altar. Now, this is not the only place this shows up. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. There's the idea right there. I, Paul, have died with Christ. He says the same thing in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that as just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's the other ordinance. The ordinance of baptism and the meaning of baptism is not, as many Christians believe, the symbolic washing away sin. We think that because water's involved. Baptism is not a symbol of washing away sin. Baptism is a symbol of dying. You go under the water into this symbolic place of death to be brought up out of the water to newness of life. Just as Christ goes to the place of death, the tomb, and comes out Resurrected again, the first fruits of our resurrection. That's what baptism is an acting out of. So both of these ordinances are pointing to the same thing. 
Both of these ordinances mean the same thing. Both of these ordinances are saying, look to the cross and see yourself on it. Specifically, your old self. Now, when I say your old self, I don't mean your 25-year-ago self. You know, that one where, oh, two decades ago, three decades ago, I was at all the bars and hanging out with all the wrong crowd and all that. That's my old self. No, by old self, the Scripture means the sin that you committed this morning. By old self, the Scripture means that unkind word you spoke to your spouse on the way to church. By old self, the Scripture means that ungodly thought pattern or that ungodly attitude pattern that you still have. That's your old self that you're to look to the cross and see the old self on it, dying with Christ. This wretched death of having the wrath of God poured out upon it, you are to see yourself there. That's what Paul means by discern the body. And that's what Paul means by saying, this is what makes your manner of coming to the table a worthy manner. Now, that process, that seeing by faith, seeing your old self on the cross, that is a painful process. The supper is a difficult thing. The supper is not this sort of, let me just sort of sit back in my pew and enjoy this. Supper is hard spiritual work. Because the supper involves seeing the ugliest part of you and seeing that on the cross by faith, seeing it there, by faith, seeing it die, the death that Jesus died, and by faith, seeing the new self rise to newness of life. So what this illustrates for us is a principle that the Bible teaches us all over the place. And that principle is this. The way forward often feels so wrong. The way forward often feels so bad. The way forward often feels like despair. That's what the way forward feels like. Progress sanctification, growth in Christ, joy in the Lord, all those things so often to our flesh feel so wrong. Because your flesh desperately wants its own righteousness. It desperately wants its own righteousness. And the supper, when approached worthily, shows your flesh You'll never be worthy. And the more the supper shows that to your flesh, the more your flesh feels like this is just wrong. That the way up seems like the way down. Doesn't it seem that way? Doesn't it just seem that way that that the way forward with Christ just feels so bad sometimes? And that's what the Scriptures teach us all over the place. That... Life is is a seed going into the ground to die. That being the greatest is being the least servant in the whole crowd. Or that being first is being at the end of the line. Or, for example, Psalm 34 and verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. 
Just that one phrase right there, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Now take that and flip it around. The one who's not brokenhearted cannot say the Lord is near me. The one who's not brokenhearted cannot say with scriptural authority, God is near. Because the scriptures say he's near the brokenhearted. Or Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, he gets that vision, that vision of Yahweh. And he says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Or Matthew 5 and verse 6, blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness. But I think, I think really the, the example that shows us this Crystal clear, Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, meaning, you remember, out fishing all night, didn't catch a single fish. Jesus says, Simon, one more cast on the other side of the boat. All right. And then the nets are tearing apart because every fish in the Sea of Galilee had leaped into that net. And what does Peter say? Depart from me. For I am sinful. That moment was the moment that Peter had been closer to the Lord, more close than he'd ever been in his life. And what was the thought that was heavy on his mind? I'm so sinful. I am so sinful. That is the discerning of the body. Because the way forward so often feels like the way backward. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, well, I really thought that I was doing really well on my scripture intake. I'm spending time with the Lord. My prayer life is more vibrant, more alive. I'm intaking more scripture than ever before. But I just feel worse. I just feel like I'm just the biggest sinner ever. That's the Christian life. Because the way forward so often feels like the way backward. Because the way forward is the way forward through discerning the body. The door to Christian joy, the door to Christian growth has despair written on the front of it. That's the door to Christian growth. The doorway to Christian growth and joy in the Lord is the doorway of despair. And we must reach out, take that door handle, turn the door handle and walk through on the other side, seeing the cross of Jesus Christ and all the wretched sin that's hung on that cross and seeing the old man right there. And that's not pleasant. That is hard spiritual work. Now we, as we see the old man, the old self on the cross, and we despair in that sinfulness, we we cannot overdo that. We cannot see our sinfulness too much unless it means that we see it and stay there. Look with me in your notes at the words of Dane Ortland. He writes this, there's nothing noble about staying in that pit of despair, meaning the pit of, let's, let's use the biblical word repentance. He says, there's nothing noble about staying in that pit, pit of despair. We need to experience it, but we are not meant to dwell in it. Healthy despair is an intersection, not a highway, a gateway, not a pathway. We must go there, but we dare not stay there. So that despair of seeing ourself, the old self on the cross, 
It's like a springboard that's meant to spring us down deep into despair and then spring us the other direction into the other biblical word that we'll use, faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance is meant to take us deep into the spring and then jettison into jettisons jettison us into faith. So think of it. Remember, who else here remembers the, I guess, well, I guess they're still going on, but the ridiculous uh, WWE. Who remembers the ridiculous fake wrestling? Anybody remember that? Okay, the fake wrestling, and if you really believe it's real, then you and I should talk later, but the fake wrestling, okay, there was two signature moves. The first signature move was you climbed up on the top turnbuckle and you jumped off and you did the pile driver on the guy on the, on the mat, which if you really did that, would kill him. The other signature move was this other ridiculous thing where the guy threw himself against the ropes and the rope slung him against the other guy. Could, what in the, could you not just run faster? Would it not be more impetus to just run toward him? Why the whole bouncing off the ropes thing? But anyway, the point was you could supposedly get more force by bouncing off the rope into the guy. That's repentance. Repentance is going deep into that despair and then being launched into faith. Or maybe maybe a better analogy is an analogy of a bow. Repentance is pulling back the bowstring and faith is releasing the arrow. And the two of those things must, must go together. One without the other is unbiblical. Repentance without faith is remorse. Repentance without faith is regret. Repentance without faith is the difference between Judas and Peter. Both of them denied Jesus. Both of them wept. One was launched into faith. The other was not. Repentance without faith is unbiblical. Faith without repentance is also unbiblical. Faith without repentance is self-righteousness. Repentance and faith are the process. Repentance and faith is what Paul is describing when he says you look to the cross and you see yourself on it. And that pit of despair launches you into the faith of belief. But they have to be together. It would be like me saying to you, you know, let me, let me give you this special quarter. I got a special quarter. I'm going to give you this really special quarter. There's no other quarter like it. It's a one-sided quarter. It's a heads-only quarter. There's no tails. You say, that's absurd. That's, that's impossible. There is no one-sided coin. By definition, a coin has two sides, like a round circle or something like that. It can't, it can't happen. In the same way, there can be no biblical repentance without faith, and there can be no biblical faith without repentance. The two of those must go together, and that is what Paul says makes the manner of coming to the table a worthy manner. Now, this repentance and this faith, one, two last things, real quickly. We must not think that that's what we bring to the table. No pun intended. We must not think that that's what we bring. We must not think that in order for us to come to the table in its worthy manner, we have to get some repentance and we have to get some faith and then we come in a worthy manner. Because the Scriptures tell us plainly, both of those are God's work. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, is the gift of God. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. It might be that God would grant to them repentance that leads into the truth. 
Both repentance and faith are God's work. Both repentance and faith are what the cross gives to us. So you see the beauty of that whole picture. The cross gives to us what's necessary for us to come to it in a worthy manner. But then the last thing for us to see is just to turn our thoughts back once again to both ordinances together. The ordinance of baptism is the ordinance that is an acting out of the beginning of the Christian life. The ordinance of the supper is an acting out of the continuing of the Christian life. So many times Christians think that this repentance and faith thing is what begins the Christian life for you. You repent and you believe, you're put into Christ, and the Christian life begins. The supper tells to us, says to us, it's not the beginning, it's every step of the Christian life that you make after that. Every single step is this deep into repentance, launch into faith. Deep into repentance, launch into faith. Discern the body, look to the Christ, to the cross, see the old man on the cross, see the wretchedness that Christ had to become in order to pay my penalty, and then launch into adoration, faith, and belief, all of which are a gift of God. That's what takes place at the supper. 